want to talk about uh, four jhanas, uh, four altered states of consciousness that can yield the indistractability that I mentioned last night. The jhanas, there are actually eight of them, well, at least in modern times. Uh, in the suttas, we find four jhanas and four immaterial states. These are altered states of consciousness that are brought on by concentration, and each one yields even more concentration. This enables you to stair-step your way into deeper and deeper levels of concentration. It's necessary to get to the first level to generate uh, a sort of baseline level of concentration. In the commentaries, this baseline goes by the name of access concentration. It's sufficient concentration, sufficient indistractability to give you access to the jhanas. Once you arrive at the first jhana, that will increase your concentration sufficiently so that you will have enough to access the second which will increase your concentration enough, or you get the picture, right? Each jhana provides a deeper and deeper level of indistractability so that you can stair-step your way down to deeper and deeper levels of concentration. The way to generate the initial concentration, the access concentration, actually, in the suttas, we find the Buddha discussing about 40 different techniques of meditation. And according to the commentaries, 30 of these will generate access concentration. Uh, I'm not going to try and discuss 30 methods. I'll talk principally about mindfulness of breathing. Okay, and uh, Gil talked about that this morning. And it's, it's basically putting your attention on the sensing of breathing, putting your attention on the physical sensations associated with breathing. Now, when you're doing that, if you should become distracted, no, when you become distracted, it's not a big deal. This is how our minds are wired. We are the progeny of creatures that were checking out the environment. Those who didn't check out the environment thoroughly got eaten by saber-toothed tigers and didn't reproduce, right? So we have these minds that want to go checking things out, you know, see what else is going on. Particularly if what we're focusing on is not particularly exciting, like, you know, in-breath, out-breath. So you become distracted. It's not a big deal. This is how your brain is wired. It can be helpful to label your distraction. Planning, worrying, wanting, angry, whatever. The first label is always correct. And spend zero effort trying to get the perfect label. You'll get it right 90% of the time. The labeling has two benefits. One, you begin to get a sense of where your mind goes when you get distracted. What's the sort of default place you go to? 
Is it negative? Is it positive? Are you trying to run away from something? You want to get something? Do you go to the past? Do you go to the future? Notice how rarely you get distracted into the present. Isn't that weird? That's all we've got, and yet we're missing out on that. So label your distractions to give you some hint of what's going on. That can give you insight. The other thing is it helps you disidentify with the thought stream. Having put a label on this fantasy, you know, as fantasy, you can let it go much easier or worry or whatever. And then very, very important, relax. Wherever you went, you probably generated a little bit of tension. You know, tension to get it, push it away, whatever. So just relax. Intentionally relax. You can say relax, you can think relax, whatever. And bring your attention back to the sensations of your breath. If you do that repeatedly, eventually, maybe not today or tomorrow, but eventually, you'll find that your mind settles in and you're no longer becoming distracted. You're knowing each in-breath, you're knowing each out-breath, and if there are thoughts, they are wispy and in the background and not pulling you off into distraction. That's the definition of access concentration. You're fully with your object of meditation, and thoughts are not distracting if thoughts are happening. There might not be any, but it, if there are, you're not getting lost. You know each in-breath, you know each out-breath. Okay? Now, in the suttas, where it talks about the jhanas, often what we find just before the jhanas, particularly in the uh, gradual training, the curriculum for the monks and nuns, what comes before the description of the jhanas is the abandoning of the hindrances. Everybody familiar with the hindrances? We could call it wanting, not wanting, too much energy, too little energy, and doubt. It's usually given as something like sensual desire, anger and ill will, or ill will and hatred, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, doubt. So those need to be abandoned. They don't have to be uprooted, but they've got to be temporarily suppressed. The method that I'm suggesting for the abandoning of the hindrances is generating access concentration. If you're not becoming distracted by your thoughts, you're not getting lost in wanting or ill will or doubt or anything else, right? So you just work with the breathing and coming back from the distractions until it settles. And you want to stay in access concentration, eh, well, I say 5 to 10 to 15 minutes before you want to try to enter the jhanas. I know that's a really nebulous, indefinite figure. That's because your sense of time will be quite distorted by the time you get to access concentration. And so if I say 7.5 minutes, yeah, you have no clue. All right. Uh, stay there for a while. All right. So now to the sutta. Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana, 
which is accompanied by thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. So secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, is being secluded from the hindrances, having a temporarily abandoned them. Uh, sometimes misunderstood, you have to go seclude yourself in the forest or something. Yeah, well, that's a very good idea, is what we're doing here. But really, what you need to seclude yourself from is the hindrances. Okay, so quite secluded from the hindrances. One enters and remains in the first jhana, which is accompanied by thinking and examining and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. The thinking and examining is a translation of the Pali words vitaka and vichara. You often find them translated as something like initial and sustained attention in connection with the jhanas. That's what they came to mean by the time of the commentaries. To the Buddha, vitaka means thinking. And vichara, uh, examining is not bad, pondering, turning something over, so turning something over in your mind. You might have noticed when you meditate that happens from time to time, right? You get caught in really investigating something, that's a distraction. When you hit the first jhana, the thinking doesn't stop. It's still there, but it's in the background. Just like when you were at Access, as I said, there might be some background thinking. Thoughts, they're wispy, but don't pull you into distraction. When you enter the jhana, that's still there. But the key part of the jhana is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. Rapture is a translation of piti, and happiness is a translation of sukha. You see PT translated a number of different ways, uh, euphoria, ecstasy, uh, delight, rapture is probably more common. Uh, my favorite translation is glee. Glee's got a sort of excited edge to it. It's, it's a positive emotional feeling. It's got some energy, right? Uh, PT is an, an energy phenomenon. It has a very distinct physical component. It may make you sit up really straight. It may uh, make you start to tremble. It may make your hair stand on end. It may make you get quite tense and rigid. But all hopefully in a pleasant way. Uh, and then sukha, best translated as joy or happiness. And for some people, when they experience sukha, it's clearly very joyful. And for other people, it's clearly very happy. And for some people, it's joyful and happy. It doesn't matter. It's the emotional aspect of the experience. When the first jhana comes on, what you're experiencing is probably piti sukha. And you can't really tell the difference between what's piti and what's sukha. It's just this physical, excited, happy energy that's come over you. And yeah, it's an intense enough experience that the first few times you're probably not trying to tease it out. Oh, this is the PT part and this is the Sukha part, but don't worry about that. 
So now it didn't tell you how to get there, right? You just get secluded from the hindrances and then you enter and remain. And you got the PT and Sukha and some background thinking. Uh, my best guess as to why it doesn't give you the details, these are basically sermons. Right? This is given to an audience. And yet the entry into the jhanas is actually kind of, well, personal. Everybody it works a little bit differently. And so if you wanted to learn the jhanas, you went and studied with a jhana master. And the jhana master gave you some stuff to do and you would go do it and you come back and then you describe what happened and the jhana master would say, well, do a little of this or maybe do a little of that. And it varies from person to person. And so writing down the instructions or even giving them to a generalized audience uh, probably wasn't going to be all that effective. And so what we have here is a stock phrase that just says, yeah, abandon your hindrances, get into the jhana. When you're there, there'll be some background thinking and PT and sukha. Of course, you're probably wondering, okay, how do I get there? How do I get there? Well, I'll talk about that in detail tomorrow, assuming my body cooperates. The key thing is to be able to get to access concentration. Get there and stay at access concentration for the 5 to 10 to 15 minutes, like I mentioned. The trick, and I'll just briefly mention it, is after you've been at access concentration for a while, let go of your previous object of attention, the breathing, and put your attention on something pleasant. Switch to a pleasant sensation as your object of attention. Now you might be wondering, oh, what pleasant sensation? You look at all the Buddha statues, they got that little wispy smile on their face. That's not there just for artistic purposes. It's a teaching. If you put a fake smile on your face when you meditate, by the time you get to access concentration, it will feel genuine. All right? Now, you may have to put it back on your face numerous times along the way to access concentration. That's okay. No problem. So, if you smile when you meditate, even if it starts out fake, by the time you get to access concentration, you'll have a pleasant sensation ready to shift your attention to. If you're following the breath of the nostrils, you shift it one inch. If it's at the belly, well, it's a little bit further shift, but not a big deal. The smile works really well for people that it works for. Uh, there have been too many people in this culture told, smile, whether you feel like it or not. So some white guy gets up here and says, smile, whether you feel like it or not. <laughs> you might not smile, right? Uh, I'd say the smile works for about 25% of the students that I work with. The most common place for a pleasant sensation is in the hands. Sort of a warm, tingly glow. If that's the case, drop the attention on the breathing. Put your attention on the pleasant aspect of the hands. Metta can be used as the access method. Do metta for half an hour. And then if you have a warm, tingly glow in your heart, you know, shift your attention to the pleasantness of that feeling. 
The heart center actually works quite well as a pleasant sensation. Some people find the third eye gets real pleasant. Top of the head, top of the shoulders, soles of the feet. You name a body part, and I've had some student find that as a pleasant sensation and be able to ride it into the jhana. So basically what I'm saying is, you know, get to access, stay there. After you've been there for a while, shift your attention to a pleasant sensation. And then the last trick, do nothing else. Just stay focused on enjoying the pleasant sensation. The jhana will come and find you. Right? Uh, You can't actually do the jhanas. I sometimes talk about doing the jhanas. Yeah, you can't do the jhanas. All you can do is set up the initial conditions and then let the jhana manifest on its own. And when it does, it's going to be fairly obvious that you're entering an altered state of consciousness that's got all this rapture and happiness, glee and joy, however you want to call it. Right? It says, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by this rapture and happiness. This is more or less an advanced practice. The first thing you want to do is get in. You know, just get in. Get the piti and sukha going. Then you want to get in the second time. Because the first time was like, wow, that was pretty cool. I want it again. Now you've got something else to overcome. The I want it. That's first entrance, right? So sometimes the second time is more difficult than the first time. And then you figure out your way in, and then you want to get in and sustain it. The length of time to sustain the first jhana is inversely proportional to the strength of the piti. Right? If it's really strong, you probably don't want to be there very long. 20, 30 seconds if it's blowing your head through the ceiling. If it's mild, you might stay there 5 or 10 minutes. 10 minutes is the max you want to run piti. You know, beyond that, you're just frying yourself and you're not gaining anything more. So somewhere between 30 seconds and five minutes is where most people are going to wind up with the first jhana. When it comes on the first time, it might be really, really intense. It might, you know, might be too much. If it's too much, take a deep breath and really let the energy out. And that'll move you on towards the second, which I'll get to in a moment. Right? So you get in, you get in again, you figure your way in, you get in, you sustain it. It may seem like that it's, once you've sustained it, it's only happening in the upper part of your body, maybe up your spine, uh, upper part of your trunk, neck, head. Right? So it says one drenches, steep, saturates, and suffuses one's body. So there's no part of one's body, one's entire body, not suffused by rapture and happiness. Once you're good at this, to do this second step is pretty simple. Put your attention where the piti sukha seems to be the strongest and just move your attention to places where it doesn't seem like it's happening. You're not trying to move the piti sukha. You don't know how to do that, but you do know how to move your attention. If you move your attention, then the piti sukha probably will follow. And then you move it again. All right, let it stabilize like that and then you can move it lower part of your trunk, down one leg, the other leg, and until it's you know fully there and it's everywhere. 
That's an advanced practice. Get in, get in repeatedly, get in and stabilize it. And then you can play with the drench deep saturated and suffuse. We have a simile. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin, sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball so that the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused with moisture inside and out, and yet would not trickle. In the same way, one drinks steep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Okay, so the picture gives us an idea of what soap was like at the time of the Buddha. You didn't go to the Safeway and buy a bar of soap. You got your skilled bath attendant or his apprentice to take a metal bowl and pour in some soap flakes and then pour in the right amount of water and then mix the soap flakes in the water until you had a homogeneous ball of soap. Right? The frenetic mixing is actually a good simile for the energy of the first jhana. It's not a calm, quiet space. We think of concentration, samadhi, really calm and quiet. Well, first jhana is not. It's got all this energy in it, just like the mixing of the soap flakes in the water. And then, of course, the water totally pervading the soap flakes is the advanced practice of drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse your body with the PT and sukha. Uh, it may be helpful to remember the simile, but the whole idea of, you know, you're getting in there and mixing is probably not going to be helpful. Just remember it's energetic, and when you get advanced, you want the PT sukha everywhere. So that's the first jhana. And as I say, it may come on with varying degrees of intensity. If it comes on super strong the first time, it probably won't come on again that strong for years, if ever. Right? If it comes on mild the first time, it might get more intense as you practice. Right? And sometimes it comes on really strong the first time, and then it's still strong, but not as strong. Uh, whatever it shows up as, that w that's what's there. And as I say, if it gets to be too much, what you want to do is take a deep breath and really let the energy out. That's your escape hatch. And <laughs> the place you are escaping to is on towards the second jhana. Further, with the subsiding of thinking and examining, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which is accompanied by inner tranquility and unification of mind, is without thinking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. All right, so the piti and sukha remain, but the thinking and examining is gone. It's really replaced by this inner tranquility and unification of mind. When you take the deep breath and let the energy out, this tranquilizes the piti, tranquilizes the body, and your mind follows along and it becomes tranquil. And if you can focus your attention now more on the sukha, the emotional experience, rather than the excited experience, then you'll get the unification of mind. 
You let your mind coalesce around the emotion of joy, happiness. <coughs> Basically what we're trying to do is a foreground background shift. In the first jhana, the piti, the physical, is predominating and the emotional is more in the background. You take the nice deep breath and when you let it out, they both decrease, but the physical decreases much more. And now it may become clear, oh, that's the sukha, that's the joy, the happiness. Put your attention on that. All right? And just stay focused on the emotion. Now you notice there's no talk about breathing or anything else in any of this. When you made the shift from the breath to the pleasant sensation, that's it for the breathing as far as your attention goes. It's the pleasant sensation until the onset of the jhana. It's the piti sukha experience in the first jhana. And then, yes, you do take an intentional breath to move to the second, <clears throat> either because you've been there in the first long enough or you, uh, you, you've had too much piti and you just take the deep breath and calm things down. And now it's, yeah, you're aware of your breath for one in and out, but then you're focused on the emotional sense of happiness. And you stay focused on that. If you can sustain the happiness and sustain your attention on it, you've arrived at the second job. There will be some background PT. It won't be so jangly. It won't be finger in the light socket, if that's what you had before. Uh, It'll probably be some rocking or maybe some swaying or maybe a few circles or something like that. Something much, there's still inner physical energy in the, in the experience, but it's in the background. It's not nearly as intense as it was. Again, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration. So there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by this rapture and happiness. So, you're focused on the happiness. It may feel like it's coming principally, say, from the heart center. You know, this happiness is sort of radiating from your heart center. It's lower, physically lower in the body than the PT. The PT, as I said, is maybe neck and head and uh, Sukha, when you move to the second, everything is calmed and come down. And you're now got this just delightful joy feeling coming out of your heart. But it may not involve your arms and legs and the rest of your trunk. Okay, to drink, saturate, and suffuse. Once you're good at sustaining the second jhana, it's still an advanced practice. First, you got to get in. You got to get in repeatedly. You got to get in and sustain it at whatever level is there, but once you're good at that, then put your attention where the sukha seems strongest and move your attention to where it doesn't seem like it's there. And again, you're just moving your attention and it'll move on through the rest of your body as you do that. Okay? But first, get in and get in and sustain it. The second jhana you, you want to learn to sustain this for an extended period. I'd say 10 to 15 minutes when you're first learning it. 
when you can sustain it for 10 to 15 minutes, and as I said, your sense of time is all messed up, but guessing 10 to 15 minutes, then you're getting skilled at it, right? When you first get in, because the sukha is so much more subtle than the piti sukha, which isn't subtle at all, when the sukha is more subtle, you may be like focused on being really happy and then you get distracted. Boy, our minds are weird. We're out searching for happiness. You find it. It's just right there. And the next thing you know, you're off someplace else. Okay, that's what it means to be human. All right. If you can come back to the happiness, just come on back. If it's gone, yeah, back to your breath or whatever. Okay. We have a simile. Suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet for water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain. Yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench deep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake so that there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturate, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by this rapture and happiness. So the image is of a lake, no streams coming in, no rain, but there's a spring at the bottom of the lake. And the cool water from the spring totally permeates the lake, so that it's everywhere in the lake. In the second jhana, most people describe it as having find a wellspring of happiness, usually in the heart center. This spring of happiness is just, it's overflowing. And if you move your attention through the rest of your body, it just fills your entire being. Now notice also it says here, rapture and happiness born of concentration. You can do this now because the first jhana gave you more concentration than access concentration. And so now you have enough that you can play with a more subtle object. The rapture is calmed down and you're focused on the happiness, the joy, the sukha. Okay? And so you hang out just focused on being happy for yeah, 10 to 15 minutes and you're good at that eventually. Now this simile is amazingly accurate. My teacher was the Venerable Ayakema and she taught me the jhanas, but she didn't read out this simile in the retreat where I learned the second jhana. And it wasn't until the next retreat she read it out. And it was just blew me away as to how accurate it was. When she finished her Dharma talk, I went running after her. Ayakema, Ayakema, it's just like that, it's just like that. Uh, because, yeah, the, the, the simile captures this spring, this wellspring of, of happiness and joy. So once you're good at the second jhana, you can move on to the third jhana. Further, with the fading away of rapture, one dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly comprehending, and experiences happiness with the body. Thus one enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. Okay, so the first thing to notice is the fading away of rapture, piti, glee, all right? The method, if you want to intentionally move 
to the third jhana is take another breath, let the energy out. And what can be helpful is find the volume control on the joy, happiness of the second jhana and just turn it down to contentment, to wishlessness, to satisfaction. What you're looking for is an emotional state of satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he couldn't sing that song, all right? You are satisfied. You're totally contented. It's still described as sukha here, but without any piti. So you take a, a deep breath and you let the intensity level of the joy, happiness, just drop down to a sense of contentment, wishlessness. And that now becomes the focus. It also mentions that one dwells in equanimity, mindful, and clearly comprehending. Uh, you don't really have to do much about any of that. Uh, the equanimity, the remember equanimity, upeka, literally means gazing upon. Right? We, we tend to think of it as balanced mind because that's what we're after. But it, you know, you're, you're just gazing upon this. You're, you're not totally wrapped up or involved in it like you were, particularly in the first jhana. You're, you're just gazing upon this sense of contentment. And you're very mindful of that, and you're clearly comprehending what's going on there. You're just fully with the experience. It says one experiences happiness with the body. The body, now that the PT is gone, is very calm and still, and it's, it's nice and pleasant. Uh, the PT of the first jhana may be so intense that it's not pleasant. It may be so pleasurable it's not pleasant, all right? And then you get it calmed down, and then you get it really calmed all the way down at the third, and your body is just, yeah, it's fine. It's... It's a thing you can just leave in the background and you're just focused on the contentment. Thus one enters and dwells in the third jhana of which the noble ones, the awakened ones, the enlightened ones, declare one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. This is quite interesting that this statement would appear here. Uh, is the sense of equanimity and mindfulness and happiness, a foretaste of Nibbana. I mean, people describe Nibbana as being very equanimous and, uh, you know, fully aware of what's going on, mindfulness, and, uh, yeah, happy, a place of happiness. So, happy, equanimous, mindful. I don't know. You know, I'd really like to, from personal experience, say, this is what Nibbana feels like. Because that would mean I would have, you know, full awakening. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's just say, hopefully this gives us a foretaste of what it's like. It's a pretty nice place to hang out. It's wishless, right? Uh, the dukkha arises because of craving, because of wanting things. If you're in a wishless state, yeah, there's no dukkha can arise because you're not doing any craving. So in that sense, surely it's a foretaste of Nibbana. 
Again, one drinks deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness, this sukha, which is manifesting really as contentment at this point. Uh, again, there's a sense of going down as you move to the third jhana. First jhana around the face, neck. Second jhana around the heart. Third jhana in the belly. Right? The sense of going down as the numbers go up is so pervasive that uh, if somebody comes to me and says, I was in the second jhana and I went down, I don't know whether they meant down numerically to the first jhana or down physically to the third jhana. Right? Uh, I actually have done some meditation for science and one of the things I was doing, I was in an fMRI. Not the best place to meditate, but nonetheless, if you want pictures, you have to put up with that. And they said, okay, we're going to tell you when to move. We'll say, go down or up. And I was like, no, you can't say down or up because you're probably thinking numerically and I'm going to be thinking physically. You can say next and previous, which worked. But down and up, you know, there's numerically down and up going in the opposite directions from physically down and up is what it feels like. Again, just like for the second jhana, you could stay here for a long time. When you're skilled at it, you should be able to stay for 10 or 15 minutes. As you get more skilled, it may be that, yeah, you could stay for 10 or 15 minutes, but you only stay for three or four minutes because you're going to move on to the next one. All right? But you know you have the capacity to stay for a longer time. And when you're learning it, you want to practice staying in it for an extended period. So you're good enough at the third jhana, that, uh, yeah, move on to the fourth. Oh, we have a simile before we do that. Suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that had been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched deep, saturated, and suffused with water, so there would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with water. In the same way, one drinks deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, the contentment free from piti, so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this happiness. So the picture is of a lotus pond with lotuses coming up out of the mud, but not above the surface. They're leading their whole lives underwater. They're filled with water from their tips to their roots. This is a very still picture. You know, the lotuses aren't waving around in the breeze. They're not bobbing up and down on the surface. They're just underwater. The third jhana is very still. If there's a sense of movement in the third jhana that's left over PT, you didn't quite get to third jhana. You just got a quieter form of second jhana. All right, so the PT is all gone, and it's by definition very still. And it can get very still with the sukha more towards happiness, but for most people it's going to be better to get the sukha down towards contentment. And you're just contented, and it just seems to go on forever without any movement. And if it's not all pervasive when you're good at it, you can put your attention wherever the contentment seems to be emanating from and just move your attention to the other parts of your body and Drink steep, saturate, 
suffuse the whole thing. So having gotten skilled at three or having been there long enough for this run, further, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous passing away of joy and grief, one enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful and contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. <clears throat> so it says, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, the previous passing away of joy and grief. This does not mean there was pain or grief in any of the previous jhanas. What's being pointed to here is a neutral state of mind. Actually, in Pali, there's a lot of alliteration and rhyming going on. So it's part of why it says that is it helps you remember. Okay, because remember, all of this was chanted, memorized and chanted. Okay, so with the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous passing away of joy and grief. In the first and second jhana, there was definitely joy. And in the first, second, and third, there's pleasure. The fourth jhana is, it says, a state beyond pleasure and pain. The way to get to the fourth jhana from the third is get in touch with the pleasure of the contentment. Being contented is pleasant. Let go of that pleasure. I find for myself in the first jhana, I got a big grin. You can see my teeth. Second jhana, I got a big smile, no teeth. Third jhana, I got the Buddha smile, right? I can put my attention on that little smile and just relax all the muscles in my face. When I do, there's a sense of things starting to sink down. And I just go with the feeling of sinking down and just let it sink for as long as it will. Let it sink towards a place of quiet stillness. If I can just ride that sinking down to the quiet stillness when I get there, then I find there's no pleasure, no pain, and it's a very equanimous state. Usually when people talk about the fourth jhana, they talk about it as the jhana of equanimity. But if I were to tell you, focus on equanimity, uh, that might be a little difficult. It's kind of nebulous. But if I tell you, focus on quiet stillness, then you will be focused on equanimity. You will be in a state of equanimity. And so for pedagogical purposes, Ayakema said, use quiet stillness as your focus, as your target of your attention. It says it contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. You might have noticed on this spiritual path that mindfulness is a big deal. And now you get mindfulness fully fully purified by equanimity. So you're going to have the mindfulness that's going to be really, really the good kind to have. It says, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind so that there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. When I first started practicing the fourth jhana, it was dark. I mean, like black. Just, you know, close your eyes. It's dark. It's black. Right? That's what it was like. But now it says bright. There's a simile. Maybe that'll help. 
Suppose a man were to be covered from the head down by a white cloth so that there would be no part of his entire body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. Okay, the picture is pretty clear. It's a guy sitting there with a white sheet completely covering him, right? Okay, the white sheet represents seclusion from the world. Yeah, that's definitely there in the fourth jhana, but why white? Why not a black sheet? So I asked Gayakema. I, it's dark when I'm there, and it says pure, bright, and, and white sheet. Why, why, what's going on? And she asked me to describe the fourth jhana, and I do, and she's, that's fine, that's fine. Keep practicing. Okay, so I had to put that in the I don't know category for 16 years. Eventually, I was practicing with Venerable Pauk at the Forest Refuge. Uh, Pauk is a jhana master from southern Burma. He teaches the jhanas as described in the Vasudhi Magga, which is a different system, different states than the ones that are here. Okay? And to get to them, uh, well, he would say I've never been in one of his jhanas. Well, I actually got to the first one one time, but that's another story. But, uh, you know, all the jhana practice I'd done before, he would be like, no, no, that's not it. Uh, what appears to have happened over time is that there was this huge transformation in the understanding of just exactly how much concentration you had to have before you could call it a jhana. When you look through the suttas and the Abhidhamma and the very early commentaries and then the Vasudhimaga, which is a later commentary, you can watch the evolution of the jhanas and see that the amount of concentration kept increasing until they actually had a completely different system by the time of the Visuddhimagga. Uh, I won't go into detail, except I was curious, so I went to study with uh, Pauk and, and had a really interesting retreat. Wasn't getting to his jhanas. Uh, basically, his technique was to follow my breath for three or four hours until I got a nimitta, a circle of light. And then I hopefully would absorb into the circle of light after another few hours. Uh, yeah, I wasn't getting there. So, but, you know, I could follow my breath for three or four hours, you know, just basically sitting there at access concentration. Sometimes, though, when my little timer went off saying it had been three or four hours, I'd smile. And when I did... I get this huge burst of piti, violent shaking. I was a little worried my head was going to pop off. Right? Luckily, it only lasted 10, 15 seconds. And then it would fade down, and I would be just incredibly happy. I had a break-your-face grin on my face. You know, I just... I wouldn't say deliriously happy. Deliriously happy without being delirious. Just... Nothing but just happiness so pervading me. It was just like the second jhana that I had experienced with Ayakima's instructions, only far more intense and far more stable. It wasn't going anywhere. So after being there for like 10 minutes, it was like, oh, I wonder what third jhana is like. Well, the problem was that the PT would keep coming back. You know, I'd be sitting there just smiling away, and suddenly here comes the PT, and it would go away. So I took a deep breath, Exhaled, 
Try to turn the piti down to contaminate. I mean, the sukha to contaminate. Here comes the piti again, you know. And I'm back grinning as big as ever. Uh, stuck in the second jhana. Well, not a bad place to be stuck. This lasted for maybe 20 minutes. And then without me doing anything, it just felt like it went over the edge of a cliff. And the deliriously happy just turned into good contentment. And the piti never came back. And now I was obviously in the third jhana. Again, super stable. Much deeper than I'd ever been before. Well, before I'd been running like five, ten minutes of access concentration. Three or four hours made quite a difference. Right? So what's the fourth jhana like? Okay, let go of that smile. You know, I, <laughs> you know, I couldn't get the smile to go away. I was stuck in the third jhana. And after, I don't know, five, ten minutes, again, there was this sense of just going over the edge. The smile went away and the sense of dropping. And it dropped for quite a while until it settled in a place of quiet stillness. And furthermore, my visual field was bright white. It was just like if I'd gone out and sat in the middle of a field on a bright sunny day and put a white sheet over my head and opened my eyes. Oh, just like it says here. Clearly, I had been practicing the fourth jhana at a level of concentration noticeably less than what's described in the suttas. Since that time, I've been able to get back to the bright white field, but only on a long retreat. And I had to spend, yep, more than an hour in access concentration to get back there. Is that a good thing to do? Well, maybe. If you come on a long retreat with me someday, we can talk about that. You know, this is actually quite, quite a short retreat with just a week. Uh, play with what you can get. Don't worry about if you do get to the fourth jhana, whether it's dark or white. It's just a place of quiet stillness. So what's the point of all this? Why bother? When one's mind is thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands thus, this is my body having material form, composed of the four primary elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. The purpose of jhana practice is to generate a mind that is concentrated, indistractable, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. That's what you're manufacturing. The indistractability means when you put your attention on something, you're not going to get lost. The pure and bright, it's not going to be contaminated with other thoughts coming in. Whatever you're looking at, you just see that. Unblemished, yeah, no more hindrances. Free from defects, malleable, put your mind in places it never went before, wieldy, 
You know, it's, it's, it's a powerful mind. And attain to imperturbability. Turns out some of the deepest insights you get on the spiritual path are, uh, well, maybe they'll perturb you, kind of upsetting. Really deep insights are all into anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, that was actually mentioned here. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And anatta, not self. Well, sort of that was all mentioned there too, right? Discovering that everything in the universe is impermanent and not reliable just might freak you out. Uh, having an imperturbable mind because you've actually been practicing the jhanas may make it so you don't get so freaked out and can actually gain the deeper insights there. Discovering that nothing is going to give you lasting happiness may freak you out, but having an imperturbable mind, right? Discovering that you don't have any core, that you're just as empty as everything else. Yeah, people sometimes find that rather freaky, right? But having the imperturbable mind can be helpful. And one directs and inclines this indistractable, imperturbable mind to knowing and seeing. One does insight practice. And what sort of insight practice? This is my body, and this is my consciousness. Now, vinyana, the word we translate as consciousness, is being used here like mind. So this is my body, and this is my mind. You are, I assume, familiar with the four establishments of mindfulness. I mentioned them briefly last night. One part body, three parts mind. You have mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. Do your insight practice with that kind of mindfulness. Investigate body and mind. See the three characteristics. The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for insight practice. If you wanted to cut this in two with a butter knife, you'd need to sharpen up that butter knife, right? You start cutting with a dull knife, it's not going to go very fast. But if you sharpened it up, you could, you could start cutting. You'd quickly make up all the time you wasted on the sharpening, right? It'd get dull again, you'd have to sharpen it again. That's your mind. You've got to cut deeply into reality to see what's there. And your mind will get dull, and you get it sharp again, and you go do it again. Right? And you do it over and over, and eventually you cut this in two. Eventually you cut all the fetters in two. You set yourself free. In the Tibetan tradition, the bodhisattva of wisdom is Manjushri. He's depicted with a sword that he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is just sharpening Manjushri's sword. You haven't cut any bonds of ignorance yet. You've got to go wield the sword by doing your insight practice. And you certainly don't want to make the mistake of just sharpening. Because if you just sharpen, eventually you've got no sword left. Right? The jhanas are about preparing your mind to do your insight practice more effectively.